Well, good morning, everyone. Peter wrote in his second letter to the diaspora or the spread out believers in Christ throughout the Roman Empire, he wrote this in chapter 3 of that second letter. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days and they will come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this, to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather here, we admit that it is the constant recurrence of our culture and of our own hearts that forgets that you are coming back. We would ask that your spirit blow here this morning. Do such a work that you reorient our hearts, remind our hearts, reawake our hearts to the reality that you are coming back, Jesus. Would you do this, Lord, for your glory in your name? Amen. So it was the spring of 1998, and I was in the airport in Caracas, Venezuela. It was late at night. I had flown from the small airport in San Antonio, Venezuela, to Caracas to meet my family. They were all coming down, my mom, my dad, my three siblings. They were all coming down to join me for spring break in Venezuela. The airport in Caracas is this hulking place. It's dark. It's all concrete. It feels very Eastern block, if you know what I mean. And I sat there 
and their plane that they were supposed to be on arrived, and they were not on the plane. Did I say 1998? Meant 99. One year later, spring of 99, I did not have a cell phone. Most people didn't have cell phones in the spring of 99. I know some of you are like, Poof. yes, there was life before cell phones, life before constant communication, life before the ability to easily let your, no- your loved ones know where they are. And the sun is setting in Caracas, and I'm sitting there waiting for my family, and they did not show. And I waited for the next plane, and the next plane, and the next plane. Finally, after about a five-hour wait, I was just trying to figure out what to do. I connected through a couple of people to be able to find out where they were using a payphone. One of my sisters, her visa was going, or her, her passport was going to run out in a couple of months. And in Venezuela, they don't let you even leave the states to come into the country unless your passport doesn't expire within the next six months. So they were stuck here in Chicago for another couple of days. I then got in a cab with a drunk cab driver and tried to find my way to the house where I was scheduled, originally scheduled to stay with my family, but just by myself that night. I'm standing here today, so yes, I did make it there. But that was probably the most anxious that I've ever been for someone else's appearing. That was probably the time where I felt it most closely that I really needed somebody to walk through those doors that I loved. This morning, we're going to talk about the second advent of Christ, the parousia, the arrival, the return of the one who we love and who loves us, Jesus Christ. I'm going to seek to answer three questions as we talk about this second advent this morning. One being, how will Jesus come back? Two being, when will he come back? And three being, what do we need to do to be ready for when he returns? So first, how will Jesus come back? Last year, or last year, last week, we talked about death. How since, since the ascension of Christ, all of his church has originally seen Jesus through the veil of death. And that may be, if he doesn't come back within our lifetimes, the way that Those of us who are in Christ will see him also. But it may be that a good chunk of us will actually see him come back, and that will be the way that we see him next. And that's what we're talking about today, his return. How will he come back? Well, first of all, he's going to come back as an honored guest, the king, welcomed by his people. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The language here is of the people of a city going out to meet a dignitary that is coming to their city. 
leaving the walls and going out to meet him and then welcoming him back into the city. This is the picture that Paul wants us to get, one of the the Thessalonians to get in his letter to them. When Christ comes back, we who are his will leave this city and welcome him as he descends and we will return with him to the earth. You'll be an honored guest, the king welcomed by his people. Second of all, he will be a dreaded judge. Seen as a dreaded judge, that's how he will come back, by everyone else. John begins Revelation by saying this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. On that day when Christ comes as king, dignitary, welcomed by his people, he will also be wailed because of. The earth will weep at his return, understanding that they have rejected the one who has come. Thirdly, Jesus is going to come in a personal way, a visible way, and in power. Listen to what happened at the ascension. This is Acts chapter 1. Jesus has resurrected. He's been on earth for 40 days, and now he's ascending back up to heaven. And the disciples are looking up. As they were looking up, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So you see, right there, God's messengers, the angels, are saying, you see him going this way, he's going to come back in the same way, personal, visible. At the end of Mark, Mark chapter 13 Actually, sorry, Mark chapter 14, Jesus is being being tried before the Jewish priests. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And listen to Jesus' words. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. In the words of Christ himself, right there as he's facing the cross, his hope was in his return. It was used as a means of conviction even. Truth-telling, truth-speaking to power, the power of the Jewish priests. One day, you're going to see true power. It's going to come in me and I'm going to descend through the clouds, you will see it. I hope that you see this direct line of redemption from the cross to the resurrection to the ascension and what we're talking about today to his return. There is no good news. There is no gospel without the culmination of all things, without Jesus coming back to bring those people, his people, the ones that he died to save, back to himself.
do you believe this? Question that Jesus asked Martha last week in John 11. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus will come back one day? That there is a day still to come? That this earth will experience His return? Do you believe this? I was sitting last night just saying, Lord, how do, how do we... How do we help this sink in? Like I was praying before, we are, we are people that are consumed with the visible, with the tangible, with the audible. They're the things that dominate our lives, the temporal. How can we train our hearts to think on the eternal? And the Lord just impressed on me. Confess it. It is a, brothers and sisters, it is a sin of omission when we do not consider the return of Christ. We are, we are choosing to take a great and steady and secure and glorious hope and choosing not to think on it. Choosing to live life not in light of the return, but in light of everything that we see. So let me just pray right now. God, we confess, we repent of our lack of considering your return. Would you forgive us, God? Would you forgive us of lacking in that area? Transform our hearts, continue to sanctify us, that you would do the good work of implanting in us a real expectant hope of your return. Amen. So how will Jesus come back? You just heard. When will Jesus come back? Well, from our own EBC affirmation of faith, of which our new members are covenanting to today, the final point is on the last things. And hear what we as a church believe. We believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of his kingdom. Personal, visible, establishment of his kingdom. What you didn't hear was a comment on the timing. That's missing intentionally. All right? It's missing intentionally because we don't know exactly when he will return. Hear the words of Jesus from Mark 13. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. This is a question that is often asked by people. How could Jesus not have known? Well, this is actually a great time of year to talk about it because that's part of the beauty of the incarnation. That Jesus, when he came to earth, and as Jeremy was saying before, fused his deity with our humanity, Philippians says he emptied himself. And part of that emptying was a certain degree of lack of omniscience. He didn't walk around knowing everything about everyone. Jesus legitimately did not know when he would come back. Does he know today? I would guess yes. He's with the Father again. He's been glorified. He's there. But as he was on earth, he did not know. He did not know. And so we don't know either. 
and we shouldn't necessarily try to figure it out. But where does that leave us? Well, I would say to just say, well, we don't know and just shrug our shoulders isn't really where the Bible wants to leave us, okay? The, the, the New Testament is full, full, full of references to the day of the Lord, to his appearing. Paul says to Timothy, he says, I have a crown of righteousness that is awaiting me and all of those who long for his appearing. Christians are identified as people who long for the return of Jesus. And you see that over and over and over again. Paul, John, James. You just see that theme through the New Testament. So to just say, well, shrug our shoulders, we don't know, probably isn't where the Bible ultimately wants us to leave that conversation. But I think this morning it's worthwhile to discuss two words. Rapture and imminence. Rapture and imminence. Rapture is the term for the secret removal of Christians from the earth. Popularized, if you're around my age especially, by a cult classic movie from the 70s, A Thief in the Night. Some of you are like, oh yeah. Had nightmares for weeks over A Thief in the Night. There's also the Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye series called the Left Behind series. Both of those cultural icons, well, Christian cultural icons in particular, Nicolas Cage was also in the movie, the newest left behind, um, is that there is a day when Christians will be secretly taken up and planes that are piloted by Christian pilots will crash. And there will be traffic jams everywhere and kids will be left without their parents and you can run down the line of what the rapture would entail. That Jesus takes his people to be with him before a time of tribulation. That's rapture. Imminence is a term that means about to happen. And it's often paired with the rapture, emphasizing the sudden surprise arrival, a thief in the night, as Jesus arrives for his people and rescues them from the wrath to come. This is according to, in particular, a certain interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we as his people would be saved from the wrath that is to come. However, I, I have to say that a more natural reading of Scripture doesn't lend itself to a belief in the rapture. This idea that there would be one day when the church is snatched up, and another day when Christ comes back. A more natural reading of Scripture is that there seems to be one day, the day of the Lord, when Jesus will return as both judge of the world and king of his people. Now, I, I say this with grace. I'm not pounding the pulpit because I only pound the pulpit when I'm emphatically sure that this is the case. And I gotta say, there are Bible-believing, strong, mature Christians that believe in the rapture. And that may be some of you. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just offering a little pushback this morning, okay? My favorite professor at Moody taught the rapture. But when he led us through our Daniel and Revelation class, he also said, there are weaknesses to that understanding. 
as there are to every understanding of the last times, what is to come. All right? So I'm just offering a little pushback this morning, some food for thought, that the rapture might not be the best way to interpret what is still to come. I would say this in addition to that. Sometimes when you wait for the rapture, maybe you're waiting for the rapture instead of actually waiting for Jesus. Let me be more clear on that. The rapture can be taken as a time of escape. There is a wrath to come. The church is going to be saved from that wrath. Whoop, let's get out of here. Instead of actually waiting for Jesus. It can be a type of escapism, maybe even a reflection on a lack of a theology for suffering in the American church. That we wouldn't say we're willing to go through suffering for the sake of the gospel. That we are somehow exempt from being refined by suffering. Just something for you to consider. So are you telling me, Andy, there's no rapture? I'm telling you that I personally am not looking for the rapture. If you're looking for the rapture, okay. But be looking for Jesus, not to escape. I personally am looking to the clouds for Jesus to return as king. Now, if he wants to take us secretly to himself before the tribulation, I'm cool with that. But I just want to warn us us against that possibility of escapism and comfortable Christianity. What about imminence? This idea that Jesus is coming soon. Could Jesus come back today? Again, remember, we're still talking about when Jesus is coming back. Could Jesus come back today? Before answering that, let me tell you a few things that the Bible seems to indicate will happen before Christ returns. One, Mark 13 talks about the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Mark 13 also talks about a great tribulation coming before the return of the Son of Man. Mark 13 also talks about false Christs and false prophets coming. Mark 13 also talks about powerful signs in the heavens. 2 Thessalonians 2 seems to be pretty clear that there will be a coming of the man of lawlessness before the arrival of the Son of Man. And number five, Romans 9 through 11 seem to point to a glorious returning of a great number of Jewish people to put their faith in Christ. Have these happened? Perhaps. Have they definitely happened? I don't know. Are all of them yet to happen? Beats me. But it seems like they haven't totally occurred. You might say, well, doesn't that weaken imminence that Jesus could come back today? It doesn't totally weaken imminence because God does things in his timing and in his way with his understanding and knowledge. His ways are higher than our ways. Our reading of prophecy is not crystal clear. Could he come back today? Yes, he could. But I would say rather than imminence has a longer view rather than particularly we must think that it is coming back today. Uh, Hear me when I say that. If you read the words of Jesus or Paul or Peter or John or James, all of whom stressed both readiness and the soon arrival of the kingdom, 
you read them, and they're talking like it's going to happen tomorrow. But the thing is, Jesus, for instance, spoke of his return before he died. So he had to die, be resurrected, and ascend before he could come back. So when Jesus was talking about his return, he was talking imminently, but also knowing that things had to happen before he could come back. He had to go, for instance, before coming back. I told you what the angels said earlier. They said he's going to come back one day. But Jesus had just told the disciples prior to that, there will be a day very soon when the Holy Spirit will come upon you at Pentecost. And you will preach the gospel to the nations from Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There were things that had to be accomplished even as the angels were saying he's going to come back one day. So I'm just encouraging you to maybe allow your understanding of imminence to be stretched a little bit. Where does that leave us? I appreciate what Wayne Grudem wrote on this. His conclusion in light of these probably yet to come conditions. He wrote, It is unlikely but possible that these signs have already been fulfilled. It is possible. At the same time, is it possible to be ready for something we think unlikely to happen in the near future? Certainly it is. Everyone who wears a seatbelt when driving or purchases auto insurance gets ready for an event, even thinking of it imminently, that he or she thinks to be unlikely. In a similar way, it seems possible to take seriously the warnings that Jesus could come when we are not expecting him, and nonetheless to say that the signs preceding his coming will probably yet occur in the future. In another, maybe not so car crash type analogy, think of, those of you who are parents, what it felt like when you first got the news that you're that you were expecting your first. All right, Simeon's my firstborn. He read earlier. When we first got the results of that pregnancy test and Nat was expecting, we knew, Lord willing, he was going to come in about 40 weeks. So we had that due date. We were looking towards that date, but we were doing things in the meantime that led up to that date. Nat was going to regular doctor's appointments. She was finding a midwife. We were... I was, I was painting his room this like neon atomic orange. It was horrible. We had to paint over it before he came back. Or not, not before he came back, before he was born. Um, there were things that, that we did in preparation for that day to get ready for that. But as we all know, there also is that possibility that baby can arrive much earlier than the due date much earlier than anticipated. So it was good that we started doing those things ahead of time. It was also good that Nat would go and get the regular checkups so she could see, am I ready for this birth? Is he doing okay in there? Right? So I, I offer these words in, with humility and interpretation, but we should all have great expectation regardless of the timing. Third question, what do we need to do to get ready? Two-word answer, stay awake. 
stay awake. If you want to turn to our text this morning, we're going to go to Mark 13. I referenced so many of those possibly future events are mentioned in Mark 13. So it's an appropriate place to go to help us answer this question about what we need to do, get, what we need to, do to get ready. It's on page 849. Jesus had just been talking about the widow's offering. He had been warning the disciples against the scribes and the teachers. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 13, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple, Herod's temple built in Jerusalem, was one of the the marvels of the ancient world architecturally. It was humongous. And even those who did not like Herod still had a sense of pride that one of the wonders of the ancient world was the place where their God dwelled and was sitting right there in their city of Jerusalem. So the disciples say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not, left, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Continuing on, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they pulled Jesus aside and they asked him privately, tell us, When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So this discussion about the architecture and the beauty of the temple turns into this question about, wait, Jesus, you just said it's all going to be torn down. When is this going to happen? A very temporal question. This temple is going to be destroyed, Jesus? Logical question. When? But Jesus responds not with just an answer about the temple, but he begins to point to the day of his return. When we get into passages like this, there we go, there is a term called prophetic prophetic foreshortening that is really helpful in going through passages like this, all right? Prophetic foreshortening is, I'll I'll describe it as George Ladd says, the prophets were little interested in chronology and the future was always viewed as imminent. The Old Testament prophets blended the near and the distant perspectives into a single canvas. The distant is viewed through the transparency of the immediate. It is true that the early church lived in expectancy of the return of the Lord, and it is the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in expectancy of the end. So what prophetic foreshortening is, is basically when a prophet heard from the Lord and wrote, that prophetic word often had elements of the near, the mid-distant, and the far. Okay? Let me show you an example here real quick. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, we find Jesus saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We always celebrate that as Jesus fulfilling the prophet Isaiah. 
But if you look over to Isaiah chapter 61 that Jesus was reading from, Jesus did not read the full passage. He read part of it for his purposes in the synagogue that day to begin his ministry. Because Isaiah wrote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. When Isaiah originally wrote this, 700 years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah saw this arrival of the Messiah, but in that, tap, in, that, in that picture, he also saw a day coming when there would be vengeance and comfort. But Isaiah put it all in one. This is prophetic foreshortening. It's seeing the full vista, but in two dimensions not really understanding the chronological distance between the different elements in the picture. Let's go back to chapter 13. I think you'll see some here, okay? Verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you were to say, but say what is ever given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Did you see what seems to be a mix of different levels of understanding chronologically what is going to happen? It seems like Jesus is directly saying, flee to the hills when the abomination of desolation comes. That, that, that was this under, that was, I'm sorry, when the temple was destroyed, 
yeah, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. That was the Jewish reader's understanding that there was going to come this day when the temple would be destroyed. And literally, the people fled to the mountains in A.D. 67. Between A.D. 67 and A.D. 70, when the temple was ultimately and fully destroyed, that happened. But then you see these references to the gospel being preached to all the nations. Reference to the elect. A fuller understanding than just the Jewish people. There, there is a mix here of prophetic words from the mouth of Jesus. Well, let's see if we can sort a couple things out here. Look at verse 24. This is not clicking for some reason. There we go. Verse 24, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the of heaven. I'll be back is what Jesus is saying here. I will be back. Everything will be shaken. This understanding of the heavens being rent, the heavens being shaken is Old Testament imagery through and through. That when God descends to the earth, the very creation that he made will quake, extending beyond just the earth itself, but into the heavens. This is the return of the king, the full arrival of the kingdom, and the king and his angels will gather all of his chosen people, the elect. Verse 28, Jesus continues to say, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see thing, these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Tim, can you help? There you go. Thanks. Take me at my word. Jesus presents here the parable of the fig tree, which seems to most directly predict that destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with us? That's past. That's history. Correct. That's why it's so incredibly important. Because Jesus concludes that parable by saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is trustworthy and his word never fails. His word never fails. So for him to present this parable that for us, 2,000 some years later, we're reading back and saying, wow, Jesus was looking at the destruction of the temple 40 years prior to it actually happening, and then it happened. We can trust that Jesus' words will come true. The historic reality of the temple being destroyed then plays itself forward into the following parable. Verse 32. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Go back one more, please, Tim. Thank you. There you go. Stay woke. This is obviously a, a phrase, a term that has a lot of emotion behind it in our culture. But I think it's appropriate for thinking through what Jesus is saying here. To stay woke is to be awoken to a reality that you did not before that realize, understand, accept, and live according to. For Jesus, I think in our modern vernacular, he would very much say, stay woke. I want you to know that I am coming back. That is a reality that I want you awoken to. I want you to realize that I am coming back in the future. And I want you to live in light of that returning. So stay woke. Live in light of that reality. There is still something to come. There is someone still to come. And it is me. Yet no one knows when but the Father. And then he gets into this parable of the servants and the doorkeeper talking about the sudden return of Christ. And he says, stay awake four times. But do we actually get the point? Would we actually say, yeah, when I'm walking out of here today, my, my takeaway is that I need to stay awake. I need to be thinking about considering the reality that Jesus is coming back. Would we let that sink down and the Holy Spirit use that truth to keep us woke to that reality? See, Jesus here is presenting prophetic foreshortening in these two parables. The temple is in the foreground. That already happened after he was speaking, but prior to where we're at now. We're in the midground there, staying awake, and in the far is his return. These images may be farther or closer than they appear. We have to begin thinking in light of the realities that have come to pass and what is still to come. Jesus, as the great prophet, the ultimate prophet, also foreshortened when he spoke. So when it comes to what is to come, are you asleep or are you awake? Well, it's interesting here. You know, Jesus uses this stay awake four times, and it just comes before he goes with the disciples to the garden before he's betrayed. And in the garden, in chapter 14, verse 38, he says this, Watch and pray. Same word as stay awake. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Of course, we know that the disciples a number of times fell asleep. Jesus asked them to pray. He was praying. Jesus asked them to pray along with him and stay awake. And their flesh was weak and they fell asleep. They did not pray. 
The disciples fall asleep and they don't follow through on staying awake. I think there's a point of connection here between the parable of the servants who were told to stay awake and Jesus then telling his disciples to stay awake. You may be saying, I don't know how to practically get this into the, into the bloodstream of my heart for me to actually be considering the return of Christ regularly. You're right. Because we are prayerless and our flesh is weak. We're prayerless and our flesh is weak. We, we, we step back from opportunities to engage the eternal by choosing the temporal to fill our lives rather than the eternal through prayer. And our flesh is weak. Jesus knows this. He knew this about those disciples. Our flesh is weak. They did not understand the gravity of the situation. Do we? So they were caught lacking in prayer, their struggle with sin, but we are like the disciples, so let's stay awake. On the positive side, Awake faith is active faith. And to that, we're going to go back to the parable at the end of chapter 13 really quick. Three ways, three ways that we can have this active faith. First of all is to trust the king's word. It was the king himself, the master of the servants that said, I am going away. Be on guard, keep awake. So just to remember, Jesus is coming back, is obedience as one of his servants. Remember, he's coming back. Believe his word. Like we talked about last week, believe that unless Christ comes back first, we will die. Now Jesus is saying, stay awake. I am coming back someday. Remember, trust my word. We trust him and his promises. Listen to what Jude wrote in verses 24 and 25 of his letter. He said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Did you hear that? Even when our flesh is weak, even when we are prayerless, He is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. He is the one that is able to deliver us into the presence of God's glory and great joy. It ultimately is not on us to stay awake. You say, but but why all the stay awake language? To stay awake, brothers and sisters, is to stay awake in the state of awakeness that the Holy Spirit has given you. See, when we are regenerated by the Spirit through faith in Christ, we are given a new disposition, a new posture. We are reborn for eternity. So the gospel tells us that the good news is that we are not only saved, but Christ will guarantee our delivery spotless and without blemish. So you may feel like, I doze all the time. I'm a sleepy Christian. 
confess it. And remember that he is the one who has made you awake. If it wasn't for the work of his spirit, you would not be in any way anticipating the return of Christ. And you would be dismissing this entire sermon and half of all Christmas carols as bunk. But the reality is, for those who are in Christ, the spirit has regenerated and rejuvenated your heart in such a way that you now expect it at the core of your new being. Even if you don't always acknowledge it and live it out in the day-to-day. We have been changed. We have been changed for eternity. Trust the king's word. Let's also be about the king's work. Did you catch that little phrase in there? Verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. Each with his work. Do you consider your work to be eternal? Do you consider what you're doing Monday through Saturday, maybe even this afternoon, to be eternal? The things that you do with the members of your body, how you use your mind, your hands, your feet, your emotions, your time, all that God has given us as his new creations, what has he called you to do? What work has he given you to do? And so that can be on two levels. It can be, yeah, all the things that you do away from here. You might feel like I'm stuck in this dead end situation. It might be your job. It might be the place that you're at with your family. It might be a place of indecision and I'm not quite sure where I'm going from here. Do you trust that the Lord is with you in that? Do you trust that right now his calling on you is to be faithful to what he has put in front of you to do? Don't worry about the five-year plan. Don't worry about the five-month plan. You might not even necessarily need to worry about the five-day plan. Just think about the next five minutes. What will you do with the next five minutes? Will you be about the work that he's given you to do? We are his servants, called, saved, as Ephesians 2 says, into good works that he prepared in advance before eternity for us to do. Consider where you're at. But then I would put on top of that, consider your spiritual gifts. Consider your place in this church. You're not here accidentally either. You're not in the place where God has you away from here accidentally. You're also not here accidentally. And the Lord has brought you here and the gifts that he's given you through his spirit to be used here with his people. Now, for some of you, that may mean I can spend a whole lot of time. I'm retired or I'm unemployed. So let me just pour into the work of the church right now in ways that I can't normally and you have lots of opportunity. Can I just say, if you don't know where you fit, can you ask somebody? Like, put that down in your bulletin right now. If you don't know where you fit, if you don't know how to be used here in this place, in this body, ask somebody. See, I'm wondering, I want to be used, I have time, I'm trusting that because I'm a Christian, I have the spirit, which means I have spiritual gifts, but I don't feel like I'm being used. 
Don't wait on somebody else to say, hey, would you fill this? Would you do this? Consider how you could ask someone else to consider who you are and say, I think you might be a good fit in this way. Take the initiative. Hebrews 10, 23-25 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just mentioned the church, but let me go back to vocation, what you do away from here. How is God calling you into work away from here? All right? I was just talking with Mark Pike before the service. Mark is flourishing in the new job that he has. And it's, as someone that's known and loved Mark for a lot of years, it's so beautiful to see him click in a place doing a thing that this time last year, he had no clue about. But God in his wonderful wisdom has done that. How about you? Are you asking God, what have you called me into? Not just at the church, but away from the church. What, what, what do you want me, how do you want to stretch me? How do you want to grow me? How do you want to pull me out of the same mundane status quo I've been stuck in for a long time? And I want to walk in faith and see if you open up new avenues of ministry, even outside of my church. But what the writer of Hebrews is here is saying is that we together are responsible to stir up one another to love and good works as we meet together. And this, as the author of Hebrews says, is a real tangible way that we live in light of the return of Christ. By seeking out other eternal people, which we are, when we seek out other eternal people and we speak and say, I want to encourage you to dive into that. I want to encourage you to love more deeply. I want to encourage you to risk in a way that you might not feel you can actually risk. Trust God. And this is the way, as, he, as the writer says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We do this together and it keeps us awake. It keeps us awake. Finally, is be on the king's watch. Stay awake, look for him. How to illustrate the king's watch? You may remember 2016. I've been waiting for 2016 for 40 years. 2016 was a beautiful year. But I got to say, from April through October, until there was that final out, my 40 years of sports scarring constantly cast doubt into my mind. But that summer was still special. The city as a whole was just tingly. More Cubs hats than ever were being worn. People were checking scores. People were talking about it. There was just this energy in the city 
because we were expectant for the arrival of a World Series. And not just a World Series, but to break the 108-year drought. And I tell you what, that game was classic. But then when everyone gathered downtown, I'm not saying this facetiously, in a way it was the closest view of heaven For real. We went and parked down at Moody and we walked across to Michigan Avenue and everyone was smiling. Everyone was laughing. There was a palpable joy, even in a broken city like ours, there was a palpable joy that the World Series brought to this city. And it cut across economic barriers, and racial barriers, even people that weren't sports fans turned into sports fans. Maybe Sox fans didn't turn into Cubs fans, but there's grace for that too. May we be a people that buzz with expectation for the return of Christ. We may say, but it's never happened. That's what the people were saying to the people in Saint Peter or in Second Peter. It's not going to happen. It never has happened. It never will happen. The king says, yes, it will happen. Maybe not according to your timetable, but it's going to happen. It is going to happen. As I was musing on Christmas this week, just these couple of lines came to me. "'Twas the night before Christ's return, and all through the earth, the only ones not sleeping, in fact, were his church. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Let's pray. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.